Wow. Um, I want to thank you all for coming. I also want to thank uh, all the other panelists for uh, the amazing stories and work and sharing that um, you all have shared today. Um, my name is Timothy Denner-Thomas. I'm general manager for Cooperative Energy Futures. We're a clean energy co-op based here in the Twin Cities. Um, I wanted to start by just talking a little bit about my journey in this work um, because I think it, it has taught me a lot about what climate justice means and what world we live in right now and uh, what we need to do about it. So I grew up in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, this is right across the river from Manhattan. Um, it's very similar economically, demographically to like the Bronx or Harlem or Brooklyn, uh, or at least Brooklyn before about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a place where you could really see the fractures and the differences in our communities. Um, you have uh, folks going down the street with a shopping cart with all their belongings right next to executives who are making I don't know how many million dollars a year um, taking the subway together uh, even and um, growing up it was just kind of a constant um, you know, we're doing what <laughs> this is how it works um, you know all the way from you know I, I lived in the counties Hudson County New Jersey um, we were one of the main centers for uh, chromium chemical manufacturing uh, in the country um, if any of you ever uh, saw the movie Aaron Brockovich, um, it's the same chemical uh, chromium that, that's in that film. Um, Jersey City has the highest concentrations of that of anywhere in the United States. Um, they actually used it as construction fill um, back about 150 years ago. So there was waste contaminated by this, and the construction companies use this as the construction fill below people's homes. So now this stuff is in 600 sites <laughs> all across our community. Um, I grew up about a mile and a half away from uh, one of the dirtiest coal plants in the country. Um, and uh, I grew up in a place where you have a million people driving through the county every single day, going from the suburbs in greater New Jersey to New York City uh, through these massive highways that break up a community where uh, most people don't have access to transportation, uh, where there are no grocery stores. Um, you know, I, I grew up having all sorts of respiratory problems. Um, I am really thankful to be able to live in a place like Minnesota where despite, uh, despite that we are still in a city which has air quality issues, um, I don't have to deal with that on a daily basis anymore. Um, and I, I think there's a real way in which, even though I didn't think about it that way, uh, climate justice has been about the air I breathe um, since I, nearly when I was born. Um, I didn't look at that as any of that as an environmental issue uh, when I was growing up. I looked at these issues as, um, you know, we've just built a society that doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Um, wait a second, we're, we're building our communities here so that, um, you know, some people have wealth and access to resources that's unimaginable and people right next door can't eat, can't have light and heat, you know, are living in housing that's infested with roaches, um, you know, are having to, uh, you know, work 40, 60, sometimes 80 hours just to pay for their basic needs and then going into debt because they can't afford it. This is what we're doing. This doesn't make any sense. Um, and at the same time, being able to see how is, despite all of this, how is a natural ecosystem weaving itself into it? 
how is it possible in the midst of all this pollution, all of this uh, destruction, um, destruction both ecological and human, that there's still all these birds that are just making their life here in the city, that the trees are still growing. They're finding a way to do it, and the way they do it is actually enriching something. It's creating the capacity for life to grow and thrive and make a living here in this place that I'm growing up that is literally toxic. Um, that, for me, was kind of the beginning of an exploration of what does it look like to build a very different kind of community, a very different type of society. Um, I have been organizing in some way, shape, or form since I was in high school. Um, I was very focused on energy issues, environmental issues, because for me, I, I look at energy and I see it as uh, the lifeblood of a society. It is how we do what we do, quite literally. It is what fuels our industry, our transportation. It organizes how we can literally structure our cities and our communities. Um, it it um, is really at the center of how we do what we do. And uh, I remember, I was probably about, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, um, you know, reading something somewhere uh, where, you know, there was this big analysis and a whole bunch of scientists were saying, well, sometime in the next 70 years, uh, we are going to be facing catastrophic environmental collapse. Um, and we have to do something dramatic and transformation. You know, I'm doing the math. Okay, I'm going to be like, what, 81? Uh, when, when that happens, I'm like, well, you know, how come nobody is talking about this? Um, and one of the things that's really inspiring to me today is as desperate as the situation is now and as far behind as we are in engaging with and dealing with these issues, um, that's a conversation now. It's a conversation now that's happening in hundreds and thousands of communities uh, all across the world. And that wasn't a conversation in any real way when I was growing up. We're in a very, very different moment right now than even 10 years ago. And I think sometimes we forget how fast it's changing in the midst and in the reality of we're still so far behind and this problem is so huge and so overwhelming. Uh, around about that time, uh, you know, I, I was getting really committed to, uh, I'm going to spend my life making that different world. And to be real clear, I didn't believe it was possible. I believed at that time, and I still think there's a pretty decent chance, honestly, that investing deeply, committing ourselves fully to building a, a just, sustainable, healthy, thriving world wasn't going to happen. But I'm committed to it anyway, because, I mean, what what else are you gonna do, right? And I think that that's a very important emotional and psychological journey for us to go on as we're dealing with something as big and giant as climate change. Um, we're not gonna have a big happy ending to this by any of our lifetimes, okay? Like, even if we transform our whole economy, our whole climate, all of that, we're gonna be facing extremely severe impacts that are gonna keep continuing. I mean, just like if you look at the science of it, if you look at the math of it, um, if we were to stop burning all the fossil fuels tomorrow, right? I mean, there'd be huge economic and societal collapse if we did that right away. But let's just do a thought experiment. If we'd shut all of that down tomorrow, the atmosphere would keep warming. It would keep warming because of all of the carbon, all of the methane that's already in the atmosphere. And the impacts we're seeing, the hurricanes and the fires and all of that that we've seen so far, it's just the beginning. 
And so we're simultaneously stepping into this process of we have to transform all of our systems at record-breaking pace far faster than we think is possible, far faster than may be possible. Our energy system, our food system, the design of our cities, transportation, we've got to change all of that. We've got to do it super fast. And we have to be in a place as our communities and as a society and politically where we're ready to take care of each other through a world that is far less predictable and far more chaotic than the one we live in right now. And that was sort of the, the uh, emotional moment of this is what I'm stepping into as a teenager. Um, very scary. Still is very scary. Um, that started to change for me. I mean, that's still very much part of my reality, but that sense of this is overwhelming. I have no idea what to do. This is far bigger, and you know, I'm stepping into this thing, which I'm you know, committed to with all my heart, but I can't see from here to there. Um, when I graduated from high school, a couple of things happened that summer. This is the summer of 2005. Um, I met up with, I just happened to hear about this conference that was happening in Boston, and with one of my friends who was from a different high school in New Jersey, we took a bus up to Boston uh, and met up with these folks, uh, mostly college students, who were launching what was at the time called the Climate Campaign. Uh, this was the early origins of the Energy Action Coalition that you may have heard of the power shift conferences that happened. Uh, really kind of the seeds in the mid-2000s of a massive wave of youth activism on college campuses, focusing on the federal government, engaging in the United Nations processes around climate change, uh, really to stand up and say, you know, youth are saying we need to head in a very different direction. We need to take a stand. We need to lead. And we need to lead locally in our communities, in the spaces in which we control and can influence our colleges, our communities. And we need to demand that same sort of leadership from our cities, from our states, from our federal government, from the whole global community. Uh, and, you know, that that has evolved and grown into something that's, um, you know, much bigger and deeper than, than what we had at that time. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of this moment of, wait a second, you know, I've just been trying to organize high school students who are not thinking about things like climate change very much. Uh, and there's this whole network of people working at a much larger scale uh, who really have some real insight into how do you organize, how do you make change, um, and, you know, are going for it. And that was really inspiring. And also coming from the community that I come from, at the same time, very, very clear insight and noticing, well, a lot of this conversation is about college campuses. And that's great. You know, we got to make change there. But it's a very privileged part of our overall society. Well, this is happening a lot in the Northeast in California, but what about the middle of the country? What about the South? What about rural America? Um, what does it take to bring organizing and change making for climate justice uh, to the rest of our community? And also, I think for so long, climate change has been perceived and talked about as this is a pollution problem. We just have to clean up these power plants. We have to put some new technology on these devices and make them cleaner, and that's really all it is. And not a question of how are we all making a living? How are we all eating? How are we all getting housed and transported and powered and all of the things that we need to do every single day? Which to me is really what this whole crisis is about. It is how do we reimagine and rebuild and reinvent all of that, which is super daunting, but also really exciting. 
I mean, if we get to do that, we can make a, a much better world for all sorts of other reasons um, that relate to the deep injustices in our society. And we have to, because it's not like carbon is, you know, some contaminant in our energy supply. It is fundamental to the chemical reaction of fossil fuels. It's it's just part of the process if you're if you're burning stuff. And um, what does it look like to have an energy system and build an economy that's not based on burning stuff? We've been through several iterations of developing towards burning higher and higher, more, more and more concentrated forms of energy for four or 500 years as you know, Western civilization. Um, this is about heading on a different track, and I think heading on a track that is reconnecting us to energy sources that are based in our communities and based in our local ecosystems and having a much deeper relationship with that energy uh, and interacting with ecosystems in that way. So I dove into all of that work head on, um, did work at the college level, organized uh, young people at, across the Midwest in, in different colleges and universities, also really started to, to play around with and figure out, well, how do we actually make this work for a new type of economy? Uh, did some work on redevelopment plans for the Ford site uh, in St. Paul, which is still ongoing, actually. Uh, and uh, 10 years ago, helped launch the energy co-op that I'm working on today and did some uh, youth leadership development, basically training um, high school and college-age young people in how do you knit together community organizing and local economic development to uh, create solutions. And through all of that, like, you know, the opportunity in front of us it's limitless. This is super exciting. I mean, there's all of these things that we can do to build new food systems that are healthier, uh, protect the land, uh, you know, create um, long-term stability in rural communities. I mean, we've had you know, Bailey and uh, Catherine, several other speakers, talk about that. We can transform our transportation sector. We can re rebuild how we do energy. We can reorganize our cities. We can build healthier housing and community structure, all these sorts of things. The possibilities are endless here. And then you come into the question of, well, if that's all, you know, fine and dandy, if we can, if we can solve climate change and make everything about how we do just about everything better in the process, which I wholeheartedly believe, why isn't it happening? Why aren't we just going forth and doing this? And I wanted to use that as a quick transition into talking about, there we go, infrastructure. Okay, this is just one infrastructure system that I spend a lot of time on. Uh, this is the US electric grid. Um, in fact, this is only the transmission lines, so the really big, giant, high-voltage portion of this. There's millions of miles of little local power lines in the communities that aren't even showing up on this map. Uh, it's all connected. This, uh, it actually extends into Canada, and that's not mapped here, too. But this is the largest machine on Earth, okay? The lights up here and the amp powering this microphone are connected through a set of wires to substations in North Minneapolis and downtown and probably out in St. Louis Park, which are connected to transmission lines that snake across Minnesota and into the Dakotas and uh, Wyoming and out to Chicago. And you know, ultimately, it's networked all across the continent. And electricity flows through that system at basically the speed of light. Okay, Every single mile of those wires and if you were to add up all of those lines there, you're somewhere around 600,000 miles. Every single mile of those wires costs about a million dollars per mile. 
Okay, I'm not going to do the math for you, but it's real money. Um, <laughs> and there's also many hundreds of power plants networked into the system. And many of those power plants cost $500 million, $2 billion. Okay? We're talking about an infrastructure in our energy system that has literally trillions of dollars invested in it over a span of many decades. And this is a big piece of the problem. This electric system is somewhere around 40% of our climate problem. But it's not the only system we're dealing with. It's just the one that I happen to spend a lot of time on. We also have our transportation system, right, which is billions and billions, probably many trillion, invested in highway networks, which are continuing this cycle of emitting carbon. And we have an industrial food system, which has uh, you know, made this massive investment in a certain way that we produce food. And I could go on. But you get the idea that we have invested as a society, and just to be clear, when I say we, I mostly mean Wall Street and to some extent federal government and other government agencies. Um, we have put a lot of money, a lot of our capital, a lot of our value as we define it in the society into building and maintaining these sorts of systems. And there's, particularly when that is privately owned, a very strong and entrenched interest to make sure that that continued to operate the way that it currently operates. I wanted to talk briefly as it relates to this to urgency because I think we get into a very dangerous relationship to urgency when we face the scale of something as big and dangerous as climate change without thinking about the underlying workings of a system like that. Because then we come into a conversation saying, okay, this is so urgent, we need to uh, pass 100% renewable energy policy. I would love to have 100% renewable energy. I wanna make sure that the way we do 100% renewable energy, number one, gets us to 100% renewable energy, and number two, isn't making the injustices that we currently have in our society much worse. And I've, I couldn't tell you the number of conversations where I've been in where I've been talking with somebody else and the other organization it's like, yeah, I really, really care about that, but we just don't have time. And I think that that is a fatal flaw in how we think about climate justice, but also just how do we solve climate change. And I'm hoping to, to address a little bit of why uh, in, in, the next, uh, in the rest of my talk. So that whole big system that I just talked about is also intimately connected with our daily lives. Probably don't think about it, but you spend a lot of time turning on switches and plugging things into outlets. And you know, nowadays, just about all of us are using electricity using devices nearly every second of our lives. Um, try not to, but uh, it happens. Um, and even when we're not thinking about it, right, right here, you are all participating in an energy using activity. Um, I am too. Uh, and we all pay for it every single month, right? You know, this is a very familiar, probably don't really spend much time thinking about it or know what it means. It's a very familiar interaction. And I think there's a bunch of questions raised by this interaction that maybe we don't think about enough. One is, why do I pay them, right? Did, did anyone ever ask you, where do you want to get your power? No. I assume everyone here is in the general geographic area where you probably get your electricity from Excel. There's a few areas greater, uh, for a little further out where you may not, but it's, it's was set up this way as a monopoly. Right? We have created a political and economic framework where if you live in a certain geography, at least in Minnesota and many other states around the country, you only have one choice about where you get your power from. 
we as a state, as a government, have said, this company gets to have monopoly control of all of the customers who want electricity, and I don't know that many people now who don't want electricity, uh, in this area. And that then raises the question of, well, well, if that's the case, how do I know I'm getting a fair deal on what I pay? Because there's no competition. There's nobody else saying, well, I could do the same thing cheaper, because you have to pay this one company. And how many of us actually spend the time to really understand how the Public Utilities Commission over in St. Paul regulates utilities to set rates, which is a super complicated process. And even as somebody who spends a lot of time in this work, really digging into it and understanding the weeds of it is basically impossible. Um, and so how do we know that we're really getting a fair, fair shake? How do we know if these companies, which, let's be clear, our policymakers have largely entrusted with the decision-making power over how we do energy, how do we know that they're gonna make this transition to clean energy for us? Um, recently, I think this was a couple of months ago, Excel announced that they were committing to 100% carbon free by 2050. That sounds really great. Excel is also currently trying to purchase a natural gas power plant that will operate through 2059. The only explanation I've been able to come up with is they're expecting to use massive scale carbon capture and sequestration which is a technology that doesn't exist yet in any cost-effective form. And nevertheless, we're going ahead and charging off into buying more dirty energy infrastructure, right? That is also polluting people's water and hurting people's air and all those other things. And that's part of our commitment to clean energy. And then this one, do we have other options? Are there other things we could do? Are there other ways we could structure this relationship? And uh, there are a lot of them. And the whole way that the political and economic situation has been set up doesn't make them super easy. Um, but I'm gonna talk a little bit about what some of those look like. You all have heard about community solar. Can I just get a show of hands who's, who's heard of community solar? Um, this is a really transformational uh, shift in how we do energy as a state because it's really the first time where our state government has said, yes, somebody other than the utility has the right to put clean energy onto the grid and provide services to end-use customers, to residents, to companies, to so on and so forth. And the utility doesn't get to decide how much or what's the price, right? Which has always been the issue. I mean, there's actually been federal law since the 1970s saying that anyone can generate free, uh, clean energy and put it on the grid, and the utility has to pay the utility's avoided cost. Now, how you get the utility to define its avoided costs has always been the problem, and they've never defined that in a way that has actually made this project pencil. Um, and I could go into those issues for a while, but the real point is here, we have for a very long time put the complete control of this market into the hands of the companies that are invested in billions and billions of dollars in making money off of a dirty energy system. And then we've imposed laws saying, okay, you have to do 30% renewable energy, you have to do you know, so on and so forth, which is great, but the way they go about it is let's build a giant centralized wind, wind farm somewhere, which is very cheap for them. They get a great return on investment on building that. And because it's all located in one location, if it's not windy right there at a given time, you need backup power. How do you provide backup power? Oh, great, now we have to build another natural gas plant which they also make a great return on investment on. So community solar is really the first time where third parties can come in and say, we're gonna develop our own solar. We're gonna put it in our communities. We're gonna uh, provide clean energy for the grid. And it's made a huge difference. So 
This chart shows um, in blue at the bottom. You can barely see. It's this tiny little wedge. This is all of the solar on individual households and individual businesses built in the entirety of the state uh, over time. By the beginning of 2016, there were 37 megawatts of solar installed in the state, basically entirely through that model. Since the beginning of 2016, we have installed about a gigawatt, so a thousand megawatts of solar in the state. To, to reiterate that, we've installed more than 20 times as much solar in the past three years as in the previous 30 years in the state of Minnesota. And part of this transformation is coming because of this yellow section, which is independent uh, production through community solar. And in fact, if I was to have 2018 data on there, you'd see that that yellow bar is even higher and a, and a huge portion of the total. So this is, is changing the dynamics of how we do energy so that other people can participate in the market. This doesn't necessarily mean it's equitable. In fact, if you look at what we're talking about when we say community solar, 90% of it here in Minnesota is serving commercial and industrial customers. It's not serving residents at all. And in fact, most of that remaining 10% that is serving residents is serving residents if you have a credit score of 680 or, or over, which means, and we're talking about, uh, Ben was talking about energy poverty and energy burden earlier. If you're a low-income household and you have the highest proportion of your income being spent on energy, you also probably have a low credit score because that's statistically very connected with being low income. Suddenly you're saying the benefits of community-owned renewable energy, if you have this credit score minimum, are only available to people who don't need it as much. That's how we've set up the economic and market structure of how we're pursuing renewable energy on the whole. As a clean energy co-op, as cooperative energy futures, we don't think that's right. Additionally, the ownership and the, the wealth, right? Because every, every time you remember that utility bill, every time you pay your utility bill, you're paying both the expenses and the revenue that generates a profit on all the investment that the utility made, in the utilities case, primarily in coal plants, nuclear plants, gas plants, so on and so forth. If you subscribe to a community solar garden, you often don't have to pay anything up front, which is great. You pay month by month, and in fact, with community solar, usually you actually get a discount. So you can participate in solar, if you have a 680 or 700 credit score, and you get an immediate savings on your monthly energy costs without having to come up with any money up front which is exactly how the utilities do it. Nobody ever came to you and said, you know, if you want electricity, you need to finance your own coal plant. Nobody ever said that, right? But that's how we treat renewable energy on the whole. If you want to have your own renewable energy, you have to finance your own power plant. And community solar is also important in that it's changing that. But again, on the whole, it's primarily for people who have means. It's not accessible because financiers, right, the whole Wall Street structure, only wants to finance people who are a good risk. And people who are a good risk are not usually low income, brown, so on and so forth. Um, what do we do about all of that? What do we do about the fact that so far, so much of how we have proceeded with renewable energy is entrenching the power of the companies that are deeply invested in fossil fuels and reinforcing this idea that access and control of energy should be for the wealthy few. What do we do about that? Ben already mentioned the Shiloh Temple project. This was the first project that our cooperative developed. Um, we actually just turned this on last June, so a little less than a year ago. Uh, this is in North Minneapolis, um, and it is a community solar garden that is cooperatively owned. So all of the subscribers are member owners, 
as we as a co-op generate profit, that profit goes back to our members. Um, and uh, the vast majority of the subscribers from North Minneapolis um, are not paying anything up front and they're getting an immediate discount in their utility bill. Uh, we developed this in partnership with a large range of community-based organizations um, that are uh, working to bring these opportunities to North Minneapolis. Uh, we also did pretty robust um, workforce development. Uh, these are some of the folks who worked on the installation crew and have now done installations for several of our other community solar gardens. One of the things I'm really excited about is that uh, one of these guys, uh, Keith in the middle, uh, he just ran for and was elected onto our board. So um, we have this kind of closed loop where it's not just, you know, you get to work in the sector, you get to subscribe, but you also get to govern. You get to be part of the decision-making process, the, the ownership process, uh, the guidance of where are we going with this whole clean energy future. This is the system. Um, you can see it there on the roof of Shiloh Temple. This is uh, Broadway Avenue. We are right now probably about right here. So this is like a mile away from here, roughly a mile and a half. There's downtown. Um, we also provide real-time access for all of our subscribers. Um, this is actually publicly available, so you can I can share this PowerPoint. You can all go to this link and see how much energy is this kicking out right now. That's part of the different relationship to energy that we're trying to cultivate. Right? What does it look like where um, I actually understand where my energy is coming from, I understand how that's being produced, and ultimately how that matches my use, right? So that we're no longer just using energy and somebody out there has to provide it for us by some means, which is probably destroying the planet in our future, but you know, we don't know anything about that because we're never consulted. Um, but instead, how do we understand the, the two-way relationship with our energy? I wanted to highlight that that Shiloh project, uh, which was the church, a neighboring mosque, and uh, about 26 community residents. Uh, it's a 200 kilowatt system. Um, we've done regular tours up there. That is actually one of the smallest projects that we have developed, and we're really excited about how we've now expanded this into uh, what I think is really the beginning of a statewide movement for cooperatively controlled clean energy. Uh, so this is just a map. Uh, we have a total of eight projects that are either operational or under construction. Um, the, some of these are rooftop systems um, in uh, various parts of uh, the, the Twin Cities. We have some ground mounts, both in southern Minnesota and up near St. Cloud. Uh, and then we're also right now in construction on um, a project right at Ramp A, right next to Target Field. Uh, again, probably less than a mile from here. Um, that uh, is, um, several of these are actually like 1.3 megawatt projects. So there's like 150 households participating in them and, and, and offsetting their full electric bill through that. Just a couple of quick pictures. This was our launch on the, for the Edina system, uh, which the city of Edina partnered with us on. Uh, this is a system that we're about to turn on um, on the roof of a church in Eden Prairie. Uh, this is a system that we are building and is going to be turned on later this summer uh, in Faribault. There's, I'm actually really excited about that because we have residents um, from a manufactured housing park in Cannon Falls who are subscribing and getting power from that. Uh, as well as a large number of people from the local Somali community in Faribault. Um, and there's a lot of uh, housing justice tensions in the Faribault community right now that um, we're really excited to, to be working in solidarity with them on. Uh, and then this is the, the system that we're building on Ramp A. This is right now just at the structural level. So again, this is the top deck of a parking lot. Um, and uh, these are the structural elements that the solar panels will sit on top. Uh, and we'll be doing a big launch event over there um, probably September or so, um, as this gets up and running. The big thing I wanted to say in closing is that this is about changing the economics and changing the politics um, of who has control over the decisions, right? 
We're no longer just going to say, yes, energy utility, you've been able to control and have a monopoly over all of our energy wealth, which is hundreds of millions every year in a city like Minneapolis. You just get to decide all of that. We'll trust you for some strange reason to do that right. Um, it has never happened before. I'm not sure why I would expect that to happen again. Uh, instead, we as communities, we as individuals, we as groups of people in a community, we as cities, um, we as larger organizations of people working together, we are going to make the choice to create the energy infrastructure that we want to see. And I think that that is analogous or can tell us a, a similar pathway for how could we do the same thing. We are making the choice with the housing systems that we want to create. We are making the choice with the food systems we want to create, with the urban design we want to create, with all of those other types of things. And I think that's really what's at the heart of climate justice. So what I wanted to ask you uh, to consider and to proceed with in closing is simply, um, this is both about carbon and all of that big regulation stuff, but this is also about building a movement. And if we look at urgency, simply in terms of how do we get more widgets out quickly, we're gonna miss the critical opportunity to create a very different political landscape where everyone understands what's at stake and everyone understands this is the opportunity that I can step into and here's how I step into. And all of us, not just a tiny little handful of activists, but all of us are gonna get in the game and make change. And I think that's the only shot we have at having a truly thriving and beautiful and wonderful future. Thank you.